If we understand that life is a journey, there is absolutely no such thing as failure. Mm. There will be milestones. Some will be successes. There will be some setbacks, some diversions perhaps. But each milestone will give us something to learn. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, friends. I'm Kim Skorupski, and with me today is Dr. George S. Everly. Dr. Everly is a professor in the Departments of Psychiatry in the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and the Department of International Health in the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Hi, George. How are you doing today? I'm well, Kim. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Well, I'm so pleased you are here. Folks, if you don't know Dr. Everly's work, let me give you a little brief bio. Dr. Everly is very famous. He's one of our diamonds here at Hopkins who's had a long career, very impactful career on psychological crisis, disaster response, resilience. He has served not only as a faculty member here at Bloomberg School of Public Health and School of Medicine, but almost 40 years traveling all over 25 countries, serving as adjunct faculty in the FBI National Academy, FEMA, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, author of over 20 books on stress, psychological crisis intervention, disaster mental health, and human resilience, and over 100 peer-reviewed journal articles. His latest books are Strategic Planning and Psychological Crisis Intervention and Disaster Response, and Stronger. He's also the author of the Johns Hopkins Guide to Psychological First Aid. And coincidentally enough, in this morning's Inside Hopkins email, he's had another article in Psychology Today. So he's pretty famous, and it's interesting how one's whole career becomes really important and evident in a global pandemic, right, George? So what kind of a wisdom did you want to share with the Faculty Factory podcast audience today? I think the first thing is we make plans about our careers, and then life takes us in very different directions. When I first started my career in public health, there was no such thing as disaster mental health. And when I was retrained in clinical psychology, again, no such thing as disaster mental health. But all of a sudden, we recognized that there was a psychological consequence to adversity. And the greater the adversity, the larger the adverse psychological impact. And we needed to do something about that. We needed to do something about that clinically. We also needed to do something about that from a public health standpoint. And my uh, my career kind of followed the disasters, so to speak. <laughs> so it's been um, 39 countries, six continents, and I'm going when everybody else is leaving. Uh, but there is uh, there's work to be done. And it's been a it's been an interesting ride, as they say. Well, I'm pleased to hear you say that you are following disasters, and as opposed to some people, I guess, who could be causing disasters. So, thank you for all the work you've done in uh, trying to follow along and help us cope with these disasters. I know your your work is just so incredibly impactful, and the crisis leadership book you're working on, and an unforgettable book looking at the folks you interviewed in your stronger book on how you know, what factors were associated with their success and their careers. And, you know, you have this perspective of, of a 30,000 foot view of resilient leadership. And, and that certainly has a lot of meaning, especially these days. And so I think it's really a, a great way to cap off this calendar year. 
with you perhaps, you know, shedding some light on this, again, the big picture, the overview, and then down to some nuts and bolts of maybe some recommendations you have for faculty members who are listening to this podcast right now, and maybe they're feeling anxious and they're worried about their career and, you know, my gosh, their labs closed down and their data were ruined or their samples were lost or the animal models are in jeopardy and they don't know if they're going to get promoted and they're doing childcare and homeschooling and, you know, so much is unpredictable and seemingly we have, you know, we have no control. Can you kind of start with that nice, beautiful overview that you provide and then maybe give us some of those nuggets? Sure. I think the antidote to anxiety as information as, as, as best we can get that information. So let's, let's start from the 30,000 foot view. Okay. So this is a pandemic, and we've not seen anything like this uh, on this scale, certainly in our lifetime. But to borrow the old phrase, this this ain't my first rodeo. This is actually my third pandemic, mm-hmm. and I was doing work in Hong Kong with SARS and later Singapore with H1N1. So this is actually my third, and I've had the opportunity to study and watch the psychological trajectory of the pandemic. I'm not a virologist. I'm interested in how people react to the pandemic. And I think it's safe to say that how people react, the, the psychology of a pandemic, that frankly, the, the psychology of a disaster can be as important as the virulence of the pandemic itself. And we certainly see this as it's in the news in terms of are we physically distancing? Is there pushback to wearing masks? Does that affect the virulence of the disease? Does that ultimately affect morbidity and mortality? And I think clearly it does. So we have to be careful to not just focus on the virus itself, but how people react to the virus. And that's really important to what you were saying before, Kim, in terms of people's careers. We plot our lives, and we hope they follow the trajectory we plot, but then something like a pandemic comes and takes us out of our game, so to speak. You know, what is it we have learned? We've learned, I think, that it's important to understand what we can control and what we can't control. So understand the nature of the virus, understand the nature of the threat, the disaster, understand it as best you can, cope with it as best you can, but understand that in the final analysis, it may be the only thing we can ultimately control is how we react to something. We are still unclear in terms of the testing positivity and sensitivity and the the, uh, true positives, the false negatives that we're seeing in testing. We're not totally sure how the virus is spread in terms of its specific mechanisms of contagion. It's an invisible threat, which makes that even more intimidating. Prior to the pandemic, we were taught things like, well, we should have a work-life balance. Well, that's an illusion now. There is no such thing as work-life balance. It's work-life integration. So we have to understand the nature of the threat as best we can and understand that's trying to hit a moving target sometimes. So what is it that people in our profession can do? The first thing we can understand is that we are our most valuable resource and we must protect it. Mm -hmm. 
We must take care of ourselves. We have spent years, decades in getting training and doing research and, and honing our craft. And we must protect that knowledge. We must protect those skills while understanding that we don't work in silos. We're members oftentimes of families, of bigger communities, and we are all connected. So taking care of ourselves physically and taking care of ourselves psychologically has to become a number one priority. When we lose our health, we lose the ability to do everything else that we enjoy doing, that we need to do. When we're not well, we are less effective on the job. We're less effective in relationships in the community. So we, we protect ourselves as best we can. But we also understand that we can't dig a hole and crawl in. We will follow the guidance from CDC and August institutions such as our own in terms of how to manage the virus. But again, let us not forget what the United Nations has warned us about, and that is that there will be an epidemic psychologically in the wake of this pandemic. It's almost a hidden pandemic. And again, how we react, whether we socially distance, are we compliant? What we do in the wake of the virus is as important in some cases as the virulence of the virus itself. Ultimately, and I've traveled to, again, 39 countries on six continents. I went to Kuwait and helped build the mental health system after the first Gulf War. And I worked for the royal family for eight years. When I gave my final address to the Kuwaiti parliament, I said, your country will never recover, despite the fact that you have more than sufficient physical infrastructure. Your country will never recover until your people recover. And I think this is the message I'd like to send to the Hopkins community, to the state of Maryland, to the country, to the world, that obviously morbidity and mortality is essential. We must focus on those things. But there's a psychology that is inextricably intertwined. And there are things that we can do. And one of those buzzwords, I guess, uh, and, and we've certainly coined it and brought it into the pandemic literature, is this notion of resilience. We've been beaten down. How do we bounce back? How do we bounce back as a community? How do we bounce back as an institution? A as a world, how do we bounce back? Are there lessons that can be learned? I think there are. I think there are lessons at the community level, at the organizational level. I think there are lessons at the personal level. So, I think that one of the most important lessons we've learned at the community and institutional level is the power of information. As Bacon once said, there is no, well, information is power is what Bacon said. And, and I follow up by saying there's no such thing as an information vacuum. So one of the mistakes that we sometimes make is that we withhold, we hold back from information. We, we, we don't want to communicate until we have that moment of absolute certainty. But what we fail to understand in this age of social media, especially, is that if leaders aren't communicating, someone else is. Inadvertently, leadership will have abdicated its leadership role. And we don't want to do that in a crisis. We do not want to advocate our leadership position to people who are often the most distressed with the fastest thumbs and the widest Twitter feeds. That's, uh, that simply serves no one. Well, so know, I, I love this point right here. I just wanted to pause to reflect that I hear from faculty all the time 
exactly what you're saying, that, that silence speaks volumes. The faculty say, you know, we appreciate the fact that this is complicated. It's complex. It changes every day, every minute sometimes. We understand that leaders don't know the answers to everything. That said, if you were to communicate more openly with what the plan is at the moment and then communicate that there is a backup plan, there's some if-then decision tree, just some some sense of a peeking into the door of the decision-making process or how things are evolving. They, they say it will give me some sense of comfort knowing that, and they don't think that their leaders aren't thinking about these things, but when we are blocked from or not as open to how decisions are made or what's being made, that heightens, I think, the anxiety. And we hear this over and over from our faculty. Again, the the prelude, we know you don't have all the answers, but for crying out loud, can you invite us to at least see the process or understand that there are plans and contingency plans and backup plans? That, I think, gives people a sense of exhale. Okay, people are on it. We're okay. But when we're in the dark and not knowing what's being discussed, that leads exactly to what you're saying. The silence either breeds fear. You know, are we losing our jobs? Are they going to furlough people? Are they going to stop contributing to our pension? Are they going to reduce our salaries? You start spinning into these, um, this magical, you know, crazy thinking where you're way off base. Or you, as you said, you look for information elsewhere, and that can also lead you down into a can of worms as well. So I think I think you're just so, so spot on, especially with what I hear from hundreds of faculty personally and in leadership and faculty senates and meetings on and on and on. Information is absolutely key. You're so right. I, I think information is power. I think information is an anxiolytic. But I, I think there's more to it than that. And just to follow up and reinforce what you're saying, the absence of information is anxiogenic. Left to its own devices, the mind will descend into an abyss of worry and, and, and catastrophizing. I mean, th- this is, in effect, a self-inflicted wound. We know how to prevent this. People are remarkably forgiving when we have to change our minds as leaders, they are remarkably forgiving when we even get it wrong. Mm. As long as we're willing to say we got it wrong and this is now our understanding. So I think it's a 30,000 foot uh, level, Kim. One of the most important things I've ever learned was the power of information. And I think at Hopkins, we've done a, a really good job. We have instituted those those videos on crisis leadership, resilient leadership. You know, how, how do we build a culture of resilience wherein the literally the fabric of the organization is one that fosters innovation and resilience and supports people when they get knocked out and helps them stand back up? And I think, again, all of this begins with information and the absence of information we start going down that abyss, and, and that, that's counterproductive. So I think there are some leadership principles, and the first one and the most important one is communication is really important. But I think the other thing, if we want to move from the macro to the micro, as I mentioned earlier on, we recognize that we are our own 
personal, most valuable resources. We've spent years in training and we've honed our skills and now we want to apply them. We want to apply them even in a pandemic. And sometimes we want to apply them even more so in a pandemic because we think, especially here at Hopkins, that we can make a difference. We think and we believe, and rightly so, that we are on the cutting edge of this science, just as we were at the cutting edge of the 1918 pandemic. As we led then, we should lead now. And it begins not just at the organizational level, but at the micro level. You may remember, and I don't know whether you read this or not, but Reader's Digest magazine. It was first published in 1922, but in the September 39 issue of that magazine, a guy by the name of A.J. Cronin wrote an article, and he began it with an interesting question. It was the most unforgettable character I've ever met, question mark, the most unforgettable character I've ever met, question mark. And interestingly enough, he went on to write about an unforgettable character. But what that did was to spawn the most popular series in the history of that magazine. And it was called The Most Unforgettable Character I Ever Met. And I remember as a child, literally, reading at age 8, 9, 10, 12 years of age. I wouldn't read much of the magazine, but I'd go right to that section, The Most Unforgettable Character I Ever Met. Little did I know that that would be a hook for me later on in my life, later on in my career. Because as I traveled the world and I looked at people and I studied, I went to London and I studied survivors of the London Blitz. I went to Coronado Island in California and studied Navy SEALs. I studied professional athletes. When I was on clinical staff, I would I would study our patients, the patients who would do well against all odds, so to speak, and and, and some of the patients who had a favorable prognosis but didn't do as well as we had hoped. And I started to understand as best I could that there were certain factors, intangibles, that made people very successful in the face of adversity. And yet, absent some of these factors, seemed to increase their risk for worsening adversity. So I started the search for what I thought made people, and to borrow from the Raiders of Digest, unforgettable. Mm. Now, why would I do that? Well, there are certain benefits to being unforgettable. Uh, and, and they're subtle. And we, we, we look at social psychology to discover some of them. But for example, the, if, and, and I'm sure there are people that, that you can think of in, in your career, in your personal life, that just stood out. And when you think about them, a smile comes to your face. Mm. So being unforgettable has many benefits. So if you're unforgettable, people smile when they see or hear your name. If you're unforgettable, you prosper from what social psychologists call the halo effect. Mm. The halo effect is people remember your successes and quickly forget your failures. So there's a real bias there that really, frankly, helps you. If you're unforgettable, people provide you with opportunities that probably aren't given to others. If you are unforgettable, people will help you. They will fuel your own resilience. We know meta-analysis after meta-analysis tells us the single best, most powerful predictor of human resilience is being connected to other people. 
And interestingly enough, if you're unforgettable, it's like a magnet. If you're unforgettable, you have a certain sense of confidence that is a magnet that attracts people. And all of these things build your social capital. And I'm not suggesting using this in a manipulative way. Human beings are hardwired to be connected. We are hardwired to to form groups, to live in groups, to work in groups. At a time when our technology was rather limited and the physical threats of our environment were uh, rather daunting, the only way we survived was to work and function in groups. And Mother Nature, it seems to me, wouldn't leave that to chance. So I think there's, and social biologists tell us, the notion of seeking connection is hardwired. We also know that loneliness, going back to the work of James Lynch in the 1970s, loneliness, now it doesn't, I'm not talking about being alone. I'm talking about loneliness. There's a difference. Loneliness is when you're alone and you don't want to be. And we know that loneliness was a predictor of heart disease, of diabetes, of sudden death, and generally does not serve the community well. And sadly, the American Psychological Association recently published a survey that said the current generation, young young adults, are the loneliest and most anxious in the history of taking these surveys over decades. So what is it we need to do? Sometimes we need to take a risk. We need to reach out. We need to go out of our way to form connections with others. Mm-hmm. Of course, we remember uh, John Dunn's um, famous work, you know, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Mm-hmm. Ask not for whom the bell tolls. It, it, it tolls for thee, for we are all connected. When we lose anyone, especially relevant to this pandemic, when we lose any one person, even though we don't know them, we have lost a bit of ourselves. Our strength as a society is our ability to form together and to work together. And this is a time when we are challenged. Uh, socially, we have dynamic processes that are, are challenges, shall we say. And our challenge to be resilient is finding ways to connect rather than ways to divide. Connectedness, it seems to me, multiplies the positive in life and divides the unhappiness. So given the alternative, I can, I can see someone, I can speak to someone, and I can find ways where we differ. But in the same breath, I can look at that person and find ways that we can work together, ways that we are similar. It seems to me that whether it's finding a career, pursuing your career, bolstering a society, that latter course is what we must do. My father was a professional musician for 80 years, although that was not his primary source of income. He was in finance. But he taught me by example something that I'm ashamed to tell you I was 40 or 50 years old before I figured it out. And it's a, it's a, uh, I think it's a truism, but it's a maxim that you've heard before. And that is life is a journey, not a destination. As soon as we figure that out, this journey through the pandemic 
will be much easier to navigate. If we see a series of destinations and we line them up in perfect order, and then a pandemic comes and wipes them off the screen, off the slate, we can be devastated. We can be anxious. We can feel out of control. On the other hand, if we understand that life is a journey, there is absolutely no such thing as failure. Mm. All there will be, there will be milestones. Some will be successes. There will be some setbacks, some diversions, perhaps. But each milestone will give us something to learn. If we understand that it's a journey, not a destination, it's impossible to fail. We simply advance in another direction sometimes. Well, this is profound on so many levels, George. And the best to me, the most clear evidence that what you say is true is I would encourage anyone think, uh, listening to think about uh, when you think about um, a destination or a goal that you were aspiring to achieve. And it's so easy for us, you know, we eggheads in academia. Oh, when I, when I get the MD, then I'll be happy. Or when I finally defend my dissertation, then I'm going to be, uh, I can relax. Or when I buy that house, or when I go on that vacation, or get that car, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And how many times can you think back to those monumental goals or wants or ends, and you got there and you went, hmm, and this is it? Okay. And then right away, it's like the little kid at Christmas time. They get the present and they play with it for 20 minutes and then they're on to, to the box or to nothing else. We are hardwired to be seeking something more, something greater, something unreachable. And that to me is evidence that you you're exactly right it is the the process it's the journey and to be foc so focused on certain goals or awards or achievements or material things is inevitably will lead us to dissatisfaction because that the achievement of those things the getting the acquiring will never ever bring us the joy and satisfaction we're seeking so I think it's profound what you just said. No, oh, thank you. I, I'm a fan of history. And I, uh, Santayana said those who fail to read history are doomed to repeat it. I'm not sure we teach history too much anymore in uh, high schools, but um, I think there's, there's some wisdom in the past. And I think of, of course, Sir William Osler's Equanimitas. 1989, I mean, 1989, that was 1889, right. um, that, that he wrote that. And, and I think this is a time that we must search for equanimity. And if we understand that this life is really a journey, there's no such thing as a failure. We will advance in one direction, we will advance in another. But every, every single milestone has a powerful lesson to be learned. We may have to make a promise to ourselves and to our neighbors, our colleagues, to endure a certain degree of inconvenience right now, perhaps even hardship. We may have to temporarily sacrifice a lifestyle as we have known it today for the promise of life itself 
tomorrow. And I, sometimes we, we lose that perspective because we get caught up in the moment. My father's journey lasted 94 years and ended prematurely, hmm. but he got it. He understood it. And I think it's a lesson that I struggle with sometimes, but I'm trying to acquire that lesson as well. Wow, you're you're so blessed by having a dad like that. I, you know, I'm still haunted by what you said a little earlier about you know hearkening to this the idea that we are all connected and that we are all part of one being, one existence, and and it just breaks my heart uh, to think of our our colleagues on the front lines who are, you know, you talk about loss and you talk about the fact that we're connected. Um, We're in academic medicine. Some of us are home, like I am in my basement, and I'm privileged to be able to continue working on on the computer and and working here again, again alone on my basement, on my science and my research and helping faculty. And there are faculty out there who have their labs have closed down. They've not been able to continue their studies. Their their fellows and their trainees have been thwarted in their attempts to make progress and to study and to further their careers. And then we have our clinicians who their practices have all but stopped or they've transitioned to telehealth. And the clinician colleagues of ours who are out there on the front lines dealing with COVID 24-7, when they're actually with the patients, suited up, masked up, in the hospitals, and then they're taking it home, God forbid, to their own families and loved ones, and they're losing losing people every day, and their colleagues are losing people every day. And so I'm haunted by when you said, you know, that we're connected, and when we lose one of us, we lose a part of us. And to think of our clinician friends who are losing so many bits and pieces of them very tangibly, um, as compared to some of us who may be losing in other ways. What would you suggest to them? And, and I guess my, my instinct would be for you, you know, this whole connectedness of taking the leap, being brave, being courageous. And I think of the Stevie Smith poem, you know, as you see me out here, I was not waving, but drowning that to, to stop to maybe be vulnerable and to say, Hey, I'm not, I'm not doing well here. I need, you know, I need some help or I'm having a hard time that, that honesty and humility. What that's my, my just my gut instinct. And I'm not a clinician. I'm not a, a therapist. I'm not a psychologist like you, but what, what would you suggest to them to shore up their own resilience? I, I think when you feel the most isolated, the most down, this should be a trigger to, to reach out. We take nothing for granted. If anything, the pandemic has certainly taught us this. But nurture the relationships you have. Rekindle the relationships you've lost. And sometimes, remember, we're just too busy to rekindle things. This is the time to do this. Create the relationships you wish you had, but we're too busy to create. I mean, remember... You know, we are part of something greater than ourselves. Be greater, be, be grateful for, for, for what you have. Pay homage to what age, misfortune, the pandemic has paid, has taken away from you. But, but we have to keep moving forward. Again, left to its own devices, the mind will descend into that abyss of despair. Mm-hmm. 
There's a reason the windshield is large and the rearview mirror is small. We need to keep moving as as people, as groups, as a society. We need to keep moving. Only when we stop does the virus win. Well, that's that's a beautiful metaphor. That the the windshield being so large and. Perhaps some of us need to, to duct tape over our rearview mirrors and our tendency to, to look backward because that's, I think, really apropos. You're, you're right. And I've, I've learned so much from you, George. I, I love the idea in summary, uh, protect the asset. And that is you. And that is your brain. You have invested so much in your career. And, um, so we need to really protect ourselves, our mental health, our physical health. You said communication. We cannot be silent in communicating to our colleagues and families and trainees and our leaders communicating to us. We have to, as you said so well, you know, we're forgiving of mistakes, but at least communicate error on the side of over communication. I try not to take it personally when faculty say, you, you send us too many emails out of the office of faculty development. And so, uh, I think right now we um, can err on the side of over-communication. You talked about the most unforgettable character, and I can't wait to read your next book titled Unforgettable. That's We are each of us unique and unforgettable, and how can we make sure we embrace and celebrate those gifts that we've been given? And then connectedness. That, to me, is I'm all about building small communities of engagement, just like this podcast, trying to build community. And I think it's never been more important than than now. So you've you've really hit on so many important concepts. Did you want to leave leave us with anything before I sign off for the day, George? Just remember the connectedness, staying connected to others, even if physically distance makes us stronger. Mm. Social distancing, that's not the right term. It's physical distancing. This is a time to socially connect. This is a time to rekindle older friendships and bury old hatchets. That's the time to look forward. So I thank you for the opportunity to spend some time this afternoon with you. Well, thank you, George. Everybody, you've been listening to and learning a lot, as I'm sure you have, because I know I have, from George Everly. If you want to get a hold of George, his email address is geverly, E-V-E-R-L-Y-1. I'll say it again, geverly1, G. E-V-E-R-L-Y-1 at jhmi.edu. You'll find him on our facultyfactory.org website. And he has an international practice in entrepreneurship, executive and leadership coaching. So feel free to reach out and check him out in uh, Psychology Today. Just uh, had an article in the second winter of the pandemic. George, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you. Take care of yourself and bye, everybody. See you next time on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.